Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Wendy and I are delighted to be joined today by Amber Kirby, a senior brand-led marketer with a CV that it reads like a who's who of super brands, to be honest. So P&G, Boots, Virgin Holidays, and most recently Eurostar. Welcome, Amber. Hi. Now, Amber, I'm just kind of going to jump straight in because you actually once told me that a career questionnaire that you took at school recommended you become an auctioneer. Uh, do you regret not going down that path? <laughs> well, um, first, I'm not really sure why they said auctioneer. It wasn't uh, one that comes directly to mind, is it? But uh, I guess I was energetic, chatty, uh, showed a great commander being able to talk too fast. Um, <laughs> but I know I don't regret not being an auctioneer. Um, definitely love the career that you just explained I've, I've had so far. Uh, and I'm pretty confident that the auctioneering community haven't really missed my presence either. So, I mean, it is an amazing career that you've had so far. Um, what actually inspired you to get into marketing? Do you want to just kind of share a bit of the journey with us? Mm. It's funny, isn't it? Because no one really grows up thinking, oh, you know what I really want to be? I want to be a marketer or work in marketing or do that stuff there. Uh, so for me, I guess if you roll back, it was when I was at uni having no directional career path uh, set at all and probably just partying a little bit too much. But um, I, went to, I went to Leeds University and I did a course economics. I wasn't super passionate about it, but I'd made it quite a broad one. So it was during a course uh, that was, it was a marketing module, in fact, uh, that I was doing. And nearby to Leeds, uh, Procter & Gamble actually have an office. And what they'd done is they'd sent two guys over to my university and they were delivering this guest lecture for me and my kind of like 400 other kind of business studies, economics students. And so they came along. It was like a Wednesday, whatever. Nothing was happening. And then they started to talk about um, the launch of Sunny Delight. Now, I don't know whether you or anyone else listening remembers Sunny Delight. I do. I do remember it. It's full of sugar. It's an ambient drink. It's uh, it's just orange sugar in a in a bottle. But the way that they talked about this this launch of Sunny Delight was just absolutely fascinating and incredible. From not just like a human behaviour and psychology perspective, but just kind of the advertising that they created. These two guys were. I don't know, they were passionate, they were funny. It felt like you wanted to kind of like meet them down the pub as well. And it was just at the same time that Sunny Delight had that famous advert where the snowmen turned orange, there was the PR disaster about, you know, the kid turning orange uh, for drinking so much. And they were talking about how they were dealing with this as well as how they thought about the launch of Sunny Delight in the first place, which was just amazing because... They launched it in fridges to make it look like a fresh orange. It's not. They positioned it just directly underneath Coke as a little bit of a better alternative for the mum to feed the kids. But obviously, it tasted tangy, fresh and exciting for the kids. And 
at the end of the day, it was just a just a soft drink, but they made it sound thrilling and smart. And then at the end of it, they said that P&G uh, offered summer internships, which was interesting. Even more interesting when they mentioned that you got actually paid quite a lot of money and you got yeah. a bar. You were hooked. I was definitely hooked on the idea of trying out this internship in P&G. And so, yeah, I applied. I was lucky enough to get selected uh, as one of the marketing interns for that summer. Uh, so I moved to Surrey. They told me it was London, but it totally wasn't. Uh, they're based in Weybridge, which uh, if anyone knows where it is, it's... Uh, I was brought up in Weybridge. It's definitely not London. <laughs> it's lovely, but it's not central London. But I was hooked anyway, right? I was in and uh, uh, I got my car and my job then for that summer, 2002 or whatever it was, was to launch Ion's pet food into the retail market, into Morrison's, Tesco's, etc. What Straight away, that was your first job. That is pretty cool. They said it was a real job that you get. It's not just photocopying and following people around. And, and they really, they bloody meant it because I joined in June and in September it was launching and I was the only assistant brand manager. My job was to quickly create a radio campaign, a PR campaign, all sorts of stuff that you would have thought somebody like P&G had already in the bag. But no, that was that was my job that summer. And somehow I scraped by, somehow I managed to do it, uh, even though I was 20 years old, bad suit, no idea what I was doing, uh, trying to make head and a tail of this stuff. And um, I had quite a big budget. So at the time I had a few hundred thousand pounds to, to do these things. And um, I'd never even seen that many noughts. <laughs> it was just like, wow. They obviously thought something went well. Uh, they liked me. They offered me a full-time job. And then the rest is history, I guess. Fantastic. What an incredible start, actually. Because it's it's like a, they're such a well-known company. P&G are go- so good for the training and giving you that whole good start. So it's like, yeah, incredible. It was pretty cool. I was excited. So let's go back a bit, Amber, and talk about what led up to all this. And, and can we start with Amber the child? So what were you like when you were little? Oh, a handful. <laughs> I was one of those really annoying kids, I think, that was uh, was quite energetic, quite curious and full of a bunch of questions. And I do remember my mum, uh, she bought me, uh, she just bought, went out and bought me like the full uh, Encyclopedia Britannica because I was just asking so many questions. So just one day it arrived and then boom, there you go, Amber. <laughs> Amuse yourself with Keep that. quiet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's the heaviest thing I'd ever known when I was like seven. And I guess I was I was brought up in Sheffield. So I just feel like I was outside all the time. I love playing football on my street. We we moved to like a modern suburbia, so I lived on a close where, you know, there weren't any cars kind of going down, so the kids were just like rolling around everywhere, playing football there and, and I was out on my bike a lot. Probably the early signs of competitiveness kind of kicking in. To, I used to kind of see how fast I could cycle around the lake. It was quite a few miles, <laughs> uh, and I would just whiz round and then try and try and beat my try and beat my time. But I, if I think back about what I was doing as a kid, I was quite naughty. My, I was in places that my mum didn't know I was in, like in the woods making a den, or you know finding an old abandoned building and kind of scurrying around that, and then. Later on, 
clubbing maybe a little bit too young <laughs> yeah, there's the advantage of not having uh, social media uh, back in the day massive advantage <laughs> that's a very good i was point. at jenny's house <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a bit familiar so um was that internship you had at PJ? was that your first job or had you done anything before then no, my actually my first job was with Jenny. Not even had a paper round each because of safety concerns. I don't know why, but we shared a paper round, right. um, which meant that we got the grand total of three pounds a week each. I've no idea why I got out of bed for this. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first job, and then I progressed to actually working in the news agent. So I um, I started. A, I can't even believe I did this. Four o'clock in the morning, I used to start. Even on a even on a school day, yeah, I used to kind of receive the papers, get them sorted out, and then finish off, do a round, uh, and then and then go to school. That's pretty sleepy in the afternoon, to be honest. I bet because that is the middle of the night. It is the middle of the night, um, which was handy for when I went clubbing because I would just go straight to work. Uh, <laughs> that, that really helped. <laughs> so, um, so probably projected forward a little bit. What's the hardest thing that you've ever had to do in your career? Uh, you know, hard stuff in careers are always to do with people, aren't they? So uh, at least they are for me. So if I think back through all those hardest moments, it normally isn't making a tough business decision per se. It's making quite an emotional decision. And and it, it could be something um, smaller, like giving somebody some tough feedback maybe that you know that they don't want to hear and trying to help them open up and, and accept that because you know it's for the greater good of them but how do you phrase it what's the kind of kickback going to be um how do you open that conversation that's that's quite hard and then bigger scale like I guess possibly doing my biggest and first uh, restructure of, a, right. of an organization yeah I did that at Boots Quite a few people, and I did it all the way through from design through to the the person that was sat interviewing them to, to kind of re-interview for their own jobs mm-hmm. again to get back into the organisation, and and that's that's super tough when you know that you know some of them they don't make it, and uh, you know that they really want to, but it's just it it doesn't work out from a kind of capability match perspective. Yeah. But giving them that news kind of face to face is possibly the hardest thing uh, that I've I've ever done. Takes quite a toll, actually. So anyone that's been uh, anyone listening that's been through a restructure, the best thing I found is um, we found other people to lean on. So uh, the kind of peer group of people at director level it was at the time, but it doesn't have to be. It can be at any level. People that you talk to, people that go through the journey with you, people outside of it, so you get a bit of a breather mm-hmm. as well from it. Because I didn't realise how much it would take from me emotionally, and then. Actually, also physically, I felt really physically drained from it because I was invested in it myself. I really wanted to make it work and I really wanted to make it work for the people uh, coming along and also for the people leaving. And that's almost too many things to do as one human being to make it work for absolutely everybody in every single situation. And yeah, needed people around me to talk to you know, let off a little bit of steam at the end of the day and, and, and kind of have a beer with, but but also to kind of share how you're feeling because uh, I, I did and, and it really, really helped. I always figure that um, if you didn't feel sad and, and emotional about it and drained, then um, there is something wrong as well. So I think it's, yeah. it's one of those things that, uh, you know, especially – if you're in a, a people business, uh, as many of us are, 
that's what happens when you when you have to sort of break bad news. But uh, yeah, I think it would be more worrying if if it was a bit blasé, for example. So yeah, I really um, liked what you said there about sharing it with other people as well, because I think the thing that it's easy to forget is that you need you need your energy to move forward, and the the people who stay um, need to be looked after every much as as the people who don't. There is that survivor's guilt sometimes as well to to support people through that's that's quite difficult the funny thing is people um so i remember from from that the people that didn't stay with us it was for a reason and actually at the time they might have felt it was either harsh or they weren't prepared for that for it themselves but having kept in touch with many of them they went on to new different and arguably in most cases i think better things because they found their feet in a place where they were really fully appreciated for the great things that they could offer. Because when you're trying to squeeze in and or be that person, be that role that isn't quite as naturally easy for you, it's just so much effort as well. So it never really works out. But the news is hard to take at the time, right? And yeah. um, it's hard to deliver. It's hard to take. But it's just like many things. Time is a wonderful healer. And it could be two weeks later and these people are skipping down the street and thinking, oh, thank goodness, because now I can pursue this or, or set up my own bead company or all sorts of stuff happen from, from people uh, harbouring uh, different dreams. Yes. And so thinking of the, the people that you've worked with over the years, has mm. there been anyone in particular who's really in, been influential in your career? Everyone remembers first bosses, don't they? Because um, it's just you're you're so young, you're fresh faced, and you're just ready to absorb anything. So I always remember my my first kind of couple of bosses at at PNG and and the things that they've they've taught me. So I started working for this guy called John Roscoe, and he was just incredible. He he helped me be a no flap, calm person in a crisis because he was just a don at this. Everyone, I just saw everyone milling around and we worked on uh, the P&G laundry business, which at the time, probably worth loads more now, at the time was worth half a billion pounds and we're rolling back now like nearly 20 years. And he he really taught me a couple of things. One, things can be really simplified. He was one of the smartest people I know, but the way that he just distilled everything to three points. I, I don't even know how he did it. But he just he just got really got the nugget of of the challenge each each and every single time, and the other thing he taught me is you can work most stuff out roughly directionally in your head, right? That classic kind of couple of bits of mass things that you know. Is this something that you can pursue, or is it not something that you can pursue? He would work that out really quickly, and then just make priority calls super quick. I've never got there. I'm nowhere near as good as John Roscoe. <laughs> but I like to think uh, sometimes when, when everyone, everyone's running around like a bit of a headless chicken, I, I just channel the be more John and um, just go, right, hang on. Let's be a bit more Yorkshire about this. What is the bloody nugget at the beginning of this yeah. uh, complex thing that people are panicking about or the shit's hit the fan or whatever? And let's just uh, let's just think about what's really at the core of it. So yeah, John Roscoe, be more John. He sounds great. You're definitely calm in a crisis. That's that's what I know about you. So he, he's done a good job. It's it's funny actually. I dread to think uh, what my bosses think of me because um, these these formative bosses are so important. But I 
I think I was just a real pain in the ass because I was I was always going in and demanding promotions and uh, and sort of uh, trying to sort of say I've done something really great. Can I have a promotion, please? So um, yeah, it, it's funny actually to sort of think back, but it sounds like he he had an amazing impact on you. Actually, the other thing that he did was um, I was maybe the opposite of you, uh, Tamara, and I, I don't know. Many people will probably be the opposite. They do some great stuff and they don't know how to talk about it or they don't know whether it's good enough they feel a bit a bit shy about it and uh, John also did um, did say to me uh, quite a few times he was like but, but you did that right mm-hmm. yeah you know but I did it with Gareth the other assistant <laughs> manager and you know well well yeah but that's that's what we're meant to do isn't it it's like yeah but you thought of that stand up for your ideas be be proud and you know you think it's normal maybe uh, because you did it either easily or it just seemed obvious to you. It's like not everything that you've done is really obvious to everybody else. So maybe be a bit more tomorrow then. <laughs> I don't know. I think I was like that when I was younger and then it kind of melted away and then it comes back again. So Yeah, be a bit more feisty, be a bit more proud of, of what you've done. Do you know what? That's a lovely segue, though, to just talking about being proud because uh, I, I mentioned that, you know, you have worked with some incredible brands. Choosing any that you like, what was the biggest impact on a brand that you were proud of? Oh, man, there's been so many. Um, there's probably, like, can I have two? Of course you can. I worked on Pringles for a few years, and I worked uh, both in the UK and I worked in uh, Switzerland. It's a P&G brand, or was at the time. And the biggest impact I had on, on Pringles was one that you won't know about, and the second is what you see today. And what you don't know about is that I stopped Pringles launching a bag uh, and instead of uh, keeping in the wonderful can the iconic red can that they have today yeah. uh, the pringles team the innovation team the global ones they wanted to launch pringles in a bag and there's the uk person i was like that is the worst possible brand idea i've ever heard of you know completely kicking out the door all the usps all the wonderful things about pringles and trying to launch it in a bag so i think the proudest thing i did was stop that and then also the problem that they were trying to achieve was it was losing customers a little bit, losing a consumer base, and it was getting a bit old. And instead injected a bit of youth back into Pringles, redesigned the, the whole pack, launched big extreme flavors, and started all the football stuff, the the links with Keep Yuppie Pringles, mm-hmm. and the stereo promotions they used to do back in the day for festivals where you got a little a speaker that fit on top of the Pringles can and made your own kind of little ghetto blaster but yeah, just just making making Pringles cool again because uh, hopefully I embraced everything that Pringles really stood for and and found the DNA of the brand and the core of it and went with that. It takes a lot of courage and also being so focused on the brand to to take that hard route because it would have been presumably a lot easier to say yeah that's a great idea let's go with the bag, but to actually have the um, uh, the, the confidence to say, I, I don't think this is a great idea. In fact, I demand that we we shelve this. That's, uh, that's- it did. And, you know, P&G is uh, it's quite a data-driven company. So you've got to figure out, like, where are you and how can you influence the decisions? Because me just kind of shouting away about how bad an idea I thought it was, especially because they've chosen the IAMS bag to launch it in and a, a royal purple colour, and they called it Pringles Select. Please Google it. Um, <laughs> um, it looked like a cat food bag, but it did to the UK customer, not necessarily to the wider global audience. And so that was me, a little bit of a lonely voice, 
but from a big crisp consumption nation saying saying this stuff so I had to bring a lot to a lot of data a lot of rational stuff to the table as well but it's a case of know your audience isn't it and wasn't easy because there was lots of higher PNG guys, uh, bosses who put their careers and in launching into this bag. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, the company's there to make money and drive growth. And if you can prove that you've got a better way to do it, not just stopping stuff. I didn't just stop the launch of the Pringles bag. Uh, we demonstrated ways to actually grow the can business, yeah. get it more youthful again, become a cool brand, get in the cool brands books uh, and, and have a higher customer base then. That's what they're really looking for. Fantastic. Well, that's that's brilliant. What's the second one then? Second one is um, when I was at Boots, you might not know it, but they've got a portfolio of brands, which is about four and a half thousand different uh, SKU lines because there's a Boots product for absolutely everything. But it was, when we arrived, the most unloved portfolio of stuff thrown together and some of it untouched for decades that um it had been in seven years of decline seven years so the team working on it just felt a bit demoralized didn't have a big direction and for me it was the boots product portfolio is like a legacy business for the uk you know people love boots i loved boots that's why i couldn't wait to work there and then to be the person that was in charge of the boots product portfolio and seeing how unloved it had been for so many years, what I'm really proud of is unearthing the little hero in every product, revamping them, rebranding them, repurposing them, putting them right in the center of the shelves and giving them a little proud role in each of the categories. And also with that team, like reinvigorating uh, the role of the Boots lineup in the context of your L'Oreal's, your P&Gs and Unilever's and, and everyone else, uh, all the other suppliers on the shelf as well, because wow, they've got some incredible products as well. And, and each one's got a beautiful little story, a little history uh, behind it. And there's, there's, there, there are super fans out there for some of the Boots products. You know, there's a one pound curl cream that people swear by. Mm-hmm. I don't myself have curly hair, but it's a pound and it's it works and people go crazy for this stuff. The waterproof plasters are the only ones that like literally genuinely stick still underwater and uh you know, it's it was a proud moment when we suddenly got that that hockey stick. You know that bit where you hit the bottom and you're up, yeah. and you're seeing the team's faces when that scorecard. Everyone's got a scorecard. It went green for like the first time in many of their careers, and just those little boosters uh, then set it on the right path. And so that you know, a proper business turnaround is uh, is something I'm also really proud of. Do you still remain very very kind of? connected to all of the brands that you've worked on over the years yes i have collections of them in my house (laughs) you might say that it's nice to feel passionate about what you're working on because um and genuinely so as well because just makes the whole rest of it quite easy because i'm passionate about electric toothbrushes yes i do still consume quite a lot of pringles (laughs) you know and and i'm really passionate about the the boots story and the boots business uh as well and then moving into travel that's an easy that's an easy move right to to move into to something that offers like life changing memorable indelible moments in people's lifetimes you know i i can feel really proud about what what i've delivered on on the, each one of the brands that i've i've been really really honored to touch yeah 
they stay with you. I mean, they are, as you say, the brand stories. I know um, starting up the agency, every time we won new clients, I would buy products from that clients and and kind of start collecting things. It, it did get to the point, though, that when I was trying to buy Pampers in the supermarket and I, I don't actually have children and my girlfriend was kind of like, oh, why are you buying Pampers? It's like, maybe I'm taking it a little bit too far here. But, uh, but yeah, they, they do. Uh, they just get you these brands, don't they? Well, you should worry. I mean, Boots have an excellent range of incontinence pads. So can you imagine <laughs> when I was trying out those products? <laughs> So as you know, though, at The Social Element, we're obsessed about helping brands have a genuine human connection with their consumers. How have you managed to create connections between your brand and customers? And again, any brand that you've worked on? Well, I think um, I started to talk about talk about travel and I was really, really lucky to work at, at Virgin Holidays. And it's one of those things, right? You know, Virgin gives you a call and it's like, wow, as a marketer, this is for many people, one of those brands that instantly gets the heart pumping and you're excited. It's one that you think, wow, to be part of that massive red engine, uh, won't that be incredible? And so working at Virgin Holidays was fantastic, but I actually saw underneath, some of it wasn't actually all in place in terms of the magic that it was driving. So as a quick example, Virgin Holidays, the average purchase of Virgin Holidays like five and a half thousand pounds and it is not your super rich customer that kind of buys this this is you know more of your average salaried kind of person yeah. so five and a half grand is massive for anybody uh, and of course it's that because it's mostly long haul uh, so people go really far Barbados Disneyland my goodness my eyes water at the cost of families uh, going across to, to Disney World but what I, what I saw was uh, that from a, a CRM journey, Virgin didn't really look after the customers. The, the holiday was magic, right? The flight is out of this world. The Virgin Atlantic flight is one of the best and most well-looked-after places you can be. Customer service is just second to none, and it's intuitive and it's genuine from the people that they hire. But the rest of the time, I don't think Virgin really uh, lived up to its magical name because because it's five and a half grand, people saved up for years and they would pay it off like bit by bit. Mm. And what we realized is we owned the kind of journey uh, with Virgin started way before the holiday, like a year and a half uh, before the holiday. And actually at the time, uh, I was working with a guy called Saul Lopez and he and the CRM team were amazing because they transformed it from what was genuinely random PDFs. We really saw a Comic Sans typeface uh, going out to the customer. I'm not even joking. And it was just unhinged and not tied up together. And it was like bits and bobs from Victoria in the, in the, in the shop where they bought the holiday or an automatically generated one uh, email from the central team. And it was just not, not glued together. So instead uh, we transformed it into the journey that of anticipation that the customer really had and you've got to respect that they were possibly giving you a lifetime's worth of savings to, to go away on this holiday. So looking after them from the very moment that decision started and sharing joy with them all the way through, consistent and in a really proper virgin way, not a mm. bit like typed out by Victoria from the shop, um, but re- really delivered with all of the anticipation and glory that people have in their hearts before they even get on the flight. That's what we really, what really, really changed. And then cushioning them when they came back down because, oh my goodness, we realized that, yeah, there's holiday blues, 
but there's a massive thump when you come back down from your holiday of a lifetime and then what do you look forward to? So we yeah. try to elongate those kind of connected moments after the holiday as well. Of course, we're hoping they book again, uh, but at the end of the day, we'd like them to, to really kind of, you know, capture a little box of that memory in, in their heart and tell everyone else about it as well. So customer service doesn't finish just because they've taken the flight home. It goes on all the way after that, which uh, was really nice to make a big change. Well, on behalf of the customers, I thank you because all I know is that as soon as we can fly again and book holidays, I'm definitely going to Virgin for my holiday because I think their experience is like amazing. So yeah, good job. <laughs> so shifting gear a little bit, mm. how would you define your leadership style? Probably quite full of ease, envisioning, engaging, energetic, and then approachable. I, li- I like to be on the journey with with, with the team uh, and, and thread, thread myself kind of through that, but really set out the, the goal and an asp- aspirational goal that we're trying to get to as well. I am genuinely known for being quite energetic and, and spurring people on to, towards that, just because... Like I said, I like to be really part of it um, and I want to make sure that everyone can come and approach me with good or, or tough stuff because I think it should all should all really be voiced. And so if I, if I don't understand the beating heart of the team and what's going on there, then I'm detached as a leader, which means I can't yeah. lead because leadership is just influence, really. Uh, and all I want to do is influence and guide the people actually that can do the jobs <laughs> and do the roles to to be kind of a, a team really together to kind of get there because I can't do digital marketing. I can't code. I can't create media plans. I can't think of the new, most exciting new ideas. Other people can, and I can help them get there. So um, that's that's probably how, how I describe it. And that style of leadership, um, I know obviously the, the pandemic has been so hard for so many companies where they haven't been used to working from home and then suddenly there's been a shift in the teams. Did you learn anything about leading a team during the pandemic that you'll be able to take to your next role? Yeah, um, we were really lucky that we had invested a lot in, um, we built a team at Eurostar. It had grown quite significantly, almost uh, doubling in in size in the, in the year before. So as we welcomed almost like new departments, like data and insights team, and, and we broadened out, I had personally created and invested quite a lot in, in the team to bond and collaborate and get to know each other beforehand. So to be honest, one of the tough things we found out is that we really were thankful for that, mm-hmm. but it's hard to recreate in a non-contact world. So what I will take forward is when we are allowed to, be a bit more together that I will continue to do what I did anyway but with just even more foresight that uh, there might be times we can be less connected to try and create that elsewhere because I will be honest I've tried so many other tricks uh, whilst we've been on screens and online but I know from new members onto my team that we welcomed during coronavirus that they felt super welcomed but it just was never it's never the same as being Mm -hmm. able to be a team together whether it's team events, away days, they they sound cheesy, but we were resting on that as we went through a really tough crisis still ongoing at Eurostar for survival and to help these millions of passengers that suddenly were thrown up in the air by a pandemic that I definitely don't want to use the word unprecedented, but we didn't have any plans for it, right? We had no systems to back it up either. So I tell you that people behind the scenes in travel in particular and hospitality We've knitted together stuff through tech, yeah, but 
just through conversation and trying to work stuff out and trying to be really human as we're trying to help out everybody whilst not going bust at the same time. It's uh, it's, it's been really tough and it's rested on um, openness that, that we had because I've had to ask people to work really hard, long hours in tough situations where they're working from home with kids and family. It's it's been a it's been a been a long haul. Obviously, as a business, we're used to working from home all the time and having to build those connections online. But I think one of the challenges for us, or one of the factors for us, has been that our team who are used to doing that are also now conducting their social life and their family life largely behind screens as well yeah it doesn't last long does it i mean when was the last time you did a zoom quiz yes so over zoom quizzes because it works it works for so long so what i fully believe in is that the way that we will work in the future will be much more screen-based and, and remote but it will never be a hundred percent because you do just like we cannot wait to travel you can't wait to to smell, to feel the atmosphere of a city, have a cappuccino somewhere in Italy or like, you know, have a croissant in Paris or just kind of discover a new and incredible beach in Turkey. It, it feels different uh, and you can visit all of these places on, on, on Zoom. And it's the same for people as well. It's, it's wonderful that you can pick up a, a Skype call or a Teams call to anyone at any time and, and see their face. But it's... It, you don't get the whole atmosphere of that coffee shop conversation or that glass of wine after work or just that buzz of an innovation session or a planning session and bouncing off people. The Zoom breakout rooms and teams, all this kind of stuff, you know, I think we're all muddling by uh, yeah. rather than creating awesome. Yeah, we are very social animals uh, yeah. at, at our core and even the most introverted people that I've met are, are craving uh, face-to-face contact with people. Uh, so. So speaking of personal, um, we're moving on to the part of the podcast now where we are going to get a little bit more personal, Amber. I hope that's okay. Sure. Uh, So we'll start with what's your idea of a perfect weekend? I think it's changed quite a lot uh, with with coronavirus because I guess my answer to you before would have been like, oh, a perfect weekend might have been like filled with friends uh, we might be going away this time of year it might be a skiing holiday lots of partying rushing down the slopes you know sunshine all this kind of stuff and to be honest now it's probably changed because I don't want my expectations to be too high uh, right. so my my perfect weekend is ones that I can achieve I guess because then that feels really nice so Getting up early, go, a frosty morning, going out. I'm, I'm in Yorkshire at the moment, so going out to Yorkshire, uh, exploring the dales, the fields, and and kind of like taking lots of Instagrammable moments and soaking that all up and coming back for a nice big chicken roast dinner, a mini twister or five, and uh, <laughs> a, a nice a nice wood burner. That sounds perfect. God, I sound about 80. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> See, and I felt this myself, and I, I think I see it on social as well. It's, I think people seem to be uh, appreciating the beauty of their natural, where they live a yeah. lot more. And I don't know why, and maybe we're just getting out more locally because we can't go further than that at the moment. But I noticed yesterday, and I don't know why it's taken me this long to notice, the lack of aeroplane noise. Ah, right. Because we live quite near an airport yeah. and, and don't know why I hadn't really clocked it before, but just thought, oh, God, it really is 
quiet. And although it's, I don't want there to be a lack of aeroplane noise because I want us all to be able to travel, but there was something quite nice about it. Ah, oh, but you hear so many stories of people like discovering uh, where they, where those paths go. So they've, yes. they've walked past this entrance to a path for so many times, but it's on their way to the station or whatever, and they've been on their way to the station instead of exploring their, their backyards in a way and found all these like little walks. Um, but yeah, I think it's finding the little tiny things that are actually awesome. Um, it's my birthday re- recently and I got, I got lots of flowers. Oh my God. It looked a little bit like a funeral parlor, but, uh, <laughs> but I, it was amazing. And I've tried to keep them all alive. So I've become a bit, bit of a florist as well. I'm trying to eke it out. Um, but yeah, f- the smell of flowers is amazing. Uh, and I'm, I'm now going to have them in the house the whole the whole year because it's made me so happy yeah and it's just it's just flowers in the house so all it that's all it is oh perhaps we're all becoming a bit more grateful and with simple things i love it so if you had an extra hour each day what would you do with it i would learn how to do hair so right now people are really having a panic with uh, their hair and mine is growing quite out of control as well so I would probably learn hairdressing because I think it's a skill that will never ever go out of fashion yeah. <laughs> I'm busy in the rest of my life I'm packed full, full to the rafters on the other stuff so uh, whether it's not hairdressing I'd, I'd learn another skill nice probably to code if it wasn't hairdressing I would learn how to code Code a robot that could then cut your hair. There you go. Oh, that's even better. We'll settle that. <laughs> and how would your friends describe you? I've often been called a Duracell bunny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they, they describe me as um, someone that can bring a, a smile to a room. And I've always got energy for anything. I'm quite a yes person as well. So if anyone suggests anything uh, to do something or go somewhere or try something, I'll definitely be the first supporter of like, yes, let's do it. But they also say that I'd try and cram a little bit too much in. But they also would say that underneath all of that extroverted kind of outer crust, and, and so they're all true, but I'm a little bit of a softy sensitive uh, underneath. Right. So I, I guess I'm like a melted M&M, all hard shell and an endeavor, and then uh, actually gooey chocolate underneath. <laughs> <laughs> if you could have one superpower... What would it be? Uh, to be able to speak any language at any time. So I've worked in uh, uh, in Switzerland for many years, and having worked in PNG in Switzerland, uh, there were so many people from all corners of the world. Whether it was you know the bottom end of South America, Turkey, Russia, China, wherever, and they were all speaking English fluently uh, and we were all working together and me and my fellow Brits were there still just speaking our native language (laughs) and barely integrating into the Swiss uh, kind of system of of things as well so and and whenever I've seen anyone kind of like flip into their second or third language and they can kind of converse and engage and kind of connect with people I, I just I'm in awe so just being able to to speak any language at any point in time and just kind of connect with people I think would be awesome yeah, we're lucky enough to work with this amazing guy called Richard Simcott, um, who helps us with uh, bringing in new talent to the agency and, mm-hmm. and sort of advising on language strategy for, for brands. But um, he speaks, I, he never puts a number on it, but it's definitely over 25 languages. And Whoa. it's incredible. He's a hyper polyglot. He's got his own YouTube channel. And when he just switches from language to language, it's amazing. But also I remember being in New York 
uh, for a sort of client event and he was with me and he just chatted to about five different people because there were so many people from, you know, all sort of different places in, in the uh, bars in New York and he was just conversing with them all and it was incredible. So I, I totally endorse that superpower. Amber, it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you. We've got one last question, which is actually, is there anything that you wished that Wendy and I had asked you or you can just change it with any closing thoughts if you want? No, I don't think there's anything that I wish you'd asked. But what I would say is that you started off uh, sharing all the brands that I'd worked on, which when you read it looks looks really incredible because I have landed really lucky in my career. There are some big brands there, but... I guess what you should really know is that underneath, I'm always trying just like everybody else is. Um, So I'm lucky to have been where I have been, surrounded by some awesome people uh, and learning a lot of stuff. But just like everybody else, I'm trying really hard to to learn and trying really hard to to lead as well and, and get better. And like many people, it probably looks really super shiny. And on top, I, I, I told you as an M&M, that's a little bit the same with confidence as well, isn't it? So um, you can put on this like little hard M&M shell of, of confidence and, and look great. But underneath, you know, you can be a big gooey, chocolatey mess trying to hold it all together. And I think that's true from even just chatting today. It's been really lovely uh, to kind of hang out with you guys. That's That's been really great. But you know, underneath everyone is is always sometimes a little bit nervous, trying to fit in as well, a little bit of imposter syndrome. Um, but actually, if we just kind of relax, like hopefully we all have here today, then um, it, it can feel really nice. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.